Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number one of Leviticus. This is the introduction to Leviticus. Well, good evening, everyone. We had such a, a great time getting through Exodus, and um, I promise you, we're reaching a crescendo here as we move into Leviticus. The title of the book of Leviticus itself tells us a lot about what it has to offer. And it's named after the tribe of Levi, pronounced Levi, not Levi. All right. It's not after the guy that makes the jeans. Actually, it is, I suppose, isn't it? All right. One of the original... Twelve tribes of Israel, and you remember all those twelve tribes were formed uh, by the twelve sons of Jacob. But this tribe of Levi was quite unique. God separated and divided it away from all the other tribes of Israel, and then he adopted it. He adopted Levi away from Jacob, just like Jacob had adopted Ephraim and Manasseh away from Joseph. Right. Levi became a special tribe and set apart for service to God. A tribe of priests to Jehovah. Now, before Leviticus was called Leviticus, the Hebrews called it Torah Kohanim. Torah Kohanim. Literally, priest teachings. Right. And in our Western way of thinking, we might say priestly instructions are more to the point instructions to the priests. Okay. The Hebrew name used today for the book of Leviticus is Vayakra, which means now he called. Right. These are the very first words, now he called, right, of the book of Leviticus. And the Hebrews eventually named each book of the Torah according to the opening phrase of each book. Now, those of us living in the early years of this third millennium A.D. are indeed fortunate because only in the last 20 years has new scholarship resulting from archaeological finds and breakthroughs in the understanding of ancient Hebrew and its cognate language called Akkadian Right, begun to shed some revealing new light on the meaning and explanation of the strange and obscure rituals contained in the book of Leviticus. Now, altar sacrifice, primarily of animals, was the primary thrust of Leviticus, and it ceased, of course, with the destruction of Herod's temple in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. Right. That same event also marked the end of the operation, at least for the time being, of the priestly class. The main purpose for the priests was to conduct the rituals that could be, formed, be performed only in the Jerusalem temple, now obliterated. Okay. With the nearly complete expulsion of Jews from the Holy Land at the hand of the Roman Empire, and with the thorough removal of Jewish thought 
from modern Gentilized Christianity that erupted by the mid-2nd century A.D., both Jews and Christians found themselves with not a lot of basis for understanding God's teaching and principles and instructions contained within Leviticus. Now, during the Middle Ages, which is a period that starts around the 5th century A.D. and lasts for about a thousand years, it was illegal for all but the church authorities to own and therefore study scripture. So the staunchly anti-Semitic popes and bishops were able to tightly control biblical knowledge and truth. And at the same time, they squelched any attempt to explore biblical events that occurred, that had occurred before, prior to the birth of the church. That is, the Old Testament became locked away and rendered obsolete. Matters such as the Hebrew sacrificial system were particularly shunned due to their blatant Jewishness. Well, by the time we in this room were born, not only had Christianity all but divested itself of the Old Testament, the church was well on its way to reducing the New Testament to little else than the four Gospels. Right? The basis of faith for the modern Christian is a set of principles that have generally been further distilled um, into what we call church doctrines. Right? Um, of course, the doctrines will vary significantly depending on which, of, which one of the few thousand Christian sects or denominations you happen to belong to. Now, for their part, traditional Jews have long ago relegated the Hebrew Bible, Holy Scripture, to second place. Right? Instead, Judaism tends to favor the voluminous works of Jewish rabbinical commentary called the Talmud right? as their prime spiritual authority. However, the sudden return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland and this unexpected rebirth of their homeland into the nation of Israel in 1948 has forced many of us to return to the scriptures, particularly the Older Testament. And it's caused us to revisit many of the concepts and prophecies and principles and the people that had been treated by the church as kind of long dead and irrelevant. Right? Now, concepts that really aren't reflected or addressed in Christian doctrinal-based theology, nor do they jibe with the often philosophical, humanistic, sectarian, and political viewpoints of rabbinical Judaism, were now being re-examined. Now, Yeshua of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all that the sacrificial system of Leviticus pointed to. The Hebrews of Yeshua's day, though, due to relying on tradition while relegating the Holy Scriptures to kind of a dusty shelf, failed to see that important connection made primarily by those ancient prophets. Christians, on the other hand, are very familiar with the church doctrine that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. At least those words are mouthed often from pulpits and platforms and churches throughout the world. Yet I have this question. How can a believer who has absolutely no understanding of the biblical sacrificial system that was the prophetic shadow 
of Christ's work comprehend the need. The need for, the meaning behind, the impact of Jesus being a sacrifice except in a rather shallow, skimming kind of a way. Okay. Next week, we're going to explore a fascinating and little-known aspect of Yeshua bringing to perfection God's principles of sacrifice, substitution, and release. Now, it is said that we will probably never fully grasp the depths of the transaction that took place on that bloody cross. If we refuse, though, to open the earliest part of the Bible, I can assure you that will remain the case. Okay. But I can equally assure you that with a better understanding of God's ordained sacrificial system that is detailed for us in Leviticus, we're going to get a much deeper appreciation for what our Messiah did for us. Okay. We're also going to understand a little better why he did it and how marvelous and wondrous God's plan of redemption truly is. And it just sits awaiting for us. Jehovah okay. did not give us Leviticus for a historical oddity or, or something that was intended only for study by great biblical scholars and historians. Neither is Leviticus for use only by Jewish priests, both ancient and future, when that temple will be rebuilt in the near future in Jerusalem and will all once again witness the blood of bulls and sheep flowing. Okay. Rather, this unique book is there to show us perhaps the major element of Jehovah's justice system, his mishpat, right, which is intended to, recall, uh, to, to restore mankind to relationship with God. And that major element is substitutionary sacrifice and the resultant release from our debt that it brings with it. Now, as we move through Leviticus, pay special attention to a fundamental God principle that is going to be set before us at every turn. A principle that is practically the opposite of so much of what all of us have been taught. It is the principle that God divides and elects and separates in order to achieve his kind of unity. Okay. He makes distinctions. He draws boundaries. Okay. Due to the distance the modern church has slowly and put between itself, uh, put, put itself between us and the, and, the, and the actual words of the Holy Scripture, we, we mistakenly cry out for unity at any cost. All right, as though uniform agreement to a man-made doctrine is godly. Okay. Today, the body of Messiah seeks widespread inclusion above all else. Okay. And this inclusion is accomplished by means of consensus and conformity and tolerance. So far, throughout our study of Genesis and then Exodus, we've witnessed anything but a doctrine of tolerance and inclusion by God. Okay. Rather, what we've seen is that he divides light from darkness, good from evil, truth from deception, chaos from order. 
Israel from everybody else. Okay? And as we examine the sacrificial system, we're going to see these same kinds of divisions and distinctions established between ritually clean and unclean, between holy and profane, between the divine and the fleshly, between the priestly and the common. Ritual purity, sexuality, diet will all be divided into the acceptable and the unacceptable. We will continue to see that the unacceptable is not tolerated by Yehovah on any level. And those who act out the unacceptable will be excluded from membership in the group he calls his people, Israel. Leviticus is going to provide us what the, call, the scholars call the priestly worldview. Why is that important to us? Because we have been declared priests. As disciples of Yeshua, we are the priests of the kingdom of God for this era. Okay? The priests whose Lord is Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. This is a label which most of us take rather allegorically or even metaphorically. I mean, we're not literally priest, priests, are we? Right? Just kind of like priests. I mean, of all the Christian cliches printed on t-shirts and ball caps, I don't think I've ever seen one that said, I'm a priest of Jehovah. Have you? Open your Bibles to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. I'm going to read the first six verses. This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yohanan, John, all right, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. Blessed are the reader and the hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near. From John to the seven messianic communities in the province of Asia, grace and shalom to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the earth's kings. To him, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins at the cost of his blood, who has caused us to be a kingdom, that is, priests for God, his Father. To him be the glory and the rulership forever and ever. Amen. I detect nothing allegorical about those words. We have been officially declared priests of God due to our faith in Jesus Christ, just as God declared the tribe of Levi to be his set-apart priests in ancient times. Now, what, what does that mean 
being a priest? What does that entail? Maybe it'd be a good idea if we found out. Since that is how the Lord sees us. This is exactly why we're going to study Leviticus carefully. We're going to find out how Jehovah looks at his priests. You. What he expects of you. Of us. Keep in mind, however, that he sees us within the context of the spiritual realm, less in the earthly realm. St. Paul in Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in former times was written for our learning so that with the encouragement of the scriptures we might patiently hold on to our hope. Paul was obviously not referring to the New Testament, which did not yet exist. He was speaking of the Torah of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. So how shall we, as modern believers, approach the instructions contained in Leviticus? Paul says, in general, it's there for our learning. Let's learn it. Today and for centuries past, it seems as though Bible commentators tend to lean towards one of two general mindsets when dealing with Leviticus. Either they gentilize and Christianize it to the point that every single thing that occurs has only to do with Jesus and the church, and therefore every detail symbolizes some element of his future ministry, or they turn around and write the whole thing off as little more than historical and a very interesting historical stage in the development of ancient Israel as a society that applied only to Israel and therefore has no relevance to us whatsoever. So my challenge has been how to describe and present to you this awesome book so rarely taught to us in these days and its very important contents in the way God wants with the relevance he intends for us to apprehend. Now, of all the wonderful and insightful and thoughtful documents and research papers and commentaries on Leviticus that I have studied, I think I most identify with the approach of a man named Gordon Wenham, who validates both the historical realities and the abiding and eternal theological values that are present, uh, present in Leviticus. That is, although he doesn't quite characterize Leviticus by using the term I have coined for characterizing the overall nature of God's word, which is the reality of duality, the result's the same. Wenham does not see Leviticus as an either-or proposition. That is, there's no reason to make Leviticus either exclusively historical literature or exclusively theological instruction. Wenham concludes, as do I, that the physical and the spiritual, the historical and the theological, exist side by side simultaneously. The reality of duality is just my way of illustrating a deep spiritual mystery. 
that there are two dimensions, if you would, two dual planes of reality that run along together like a left and right side of a railroad track. It's a pair of tracks that makes a complete railroad track. One track by itself is just half a track. Okay. Now, continuing with that railroad track illustration, of the two tracks, one of them represents the real, tangible, physical manifestation of God's pronouncements. It's what we're familiar with because it's what our senses can detect. Okay. It's what we can see, we can touch, we can smell it, we can hear it. It's the physical world that's all around us. The other track is generally invisible to us. It's that spiritual track. Okay? It represents the spirit world, heaven, hell, our own vis- invisible human spirits, and the absolutely real but invisible spiritual world that surrounds us. Okay? The two tracks run along in parallel, being a complement to one another. And as we discussed at length in the last half of Exodus, the tabernacle is a prime example of the reality of duality principle and operation. The wilderness tabernacle was the physical earthly replica of God's heavenly spiritual tabernacle. They existed simultaneously, both completely real, but for humans, we could see one, but we couldn't see the other. Okay? What is so difficult for us humans to deal with, though, is that it is the invisible spiritual reality that far exceeds anything possible in the physical. Okay? The spiritual has no limitations. The physical has nothing but limitations. Okay? So whatever is manifested physically is automatically inferior to its spiritual counterpart. Please note that I said inferior, not worthless, not bad. Now what we also find as a general uh, as a general biblical principle is that God's pronouncements, his laws and commands and systems do not become obsolete or end but we watch them transform. Transform means that the nature of the underlying structure remains, but the outward appearance changes, and often how it operates changes. Often this transformation takes place via substitution. And it is this transformation and substitution that most interests me, because The God-ordained sacrificial system is for all intents and purposes alive and well today. Simply transformed. Let me explain. Physically speaking, the Levitical sacrificial system, which involves the killing of specified animals, isn't any longer physically practiced. It's going to be again. Someday. Yet the spiritual parallel of that sacrificial system continues to exist. The physical aspect of the sacrificial system did not become obsolete because 
a physical sacrifice and the shedding of physical blood was still necessary for the atonement of sin, wasn't it? Okay. However, the sacrificial system did undergo a transformation by making Jesus the perfect and permanent physical sacrifice for the atonement of sins that was formally temporary and accomplished by the slaying of prescribed animals. From that physical aspect, which by nature is subject to the constraints of time and space, we can also say that Yeshua's atoning death has already occurred some 2,000 years ago, right? From a spiritual point of view, though, which is not constrained by time and space, Christ's sacrifice has no beginning and no end. We don't actually rely today on something old or something in the past. In the spiritual realm, his atoning death is ongoing. It's present. Right. The reason for its purpose has never ended. Okay. It is still needed for every soul who wishes to have peace with God and to live eternally in his life. Now, I tell you this because I want you to understand that Leviticus is as relevant to us today as it was to those Israelites who at the time of Leviticus were but a year removed from their subjugation in Egypt. That the principles God is introducing in Leviticus are identical to the ones that Christ eventually manifested and spiritually speaking is still manifesting at this moment. Now let me set the stage for you to put Leviticus in its historical context and to lay out its structure, both being important elements in understanding what we're going to be reading. Now, while the first book of the Torah, Genesis, is the book of beginnings, and Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of the Torah, is really a sermon that expounds on the law that's already given, Those two books surround, they act like bookends, if you would, to the middle three books of the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The beauty of studying the Torah and the Old Testament in general is that it is, generally speaking, sequential. That is, it follows a timeline. You can almost read it like a novel. Okay? You read it like a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Okay? And this is not like the New Testament, which apart from the four Gospels is primarily a collection of letters and memos, each of which stood alone. Right? Originally, these letters from Paul and Peter and James and others sought to deal with specific issues that arose at specific church locations and the earliest formative days of Christianity before it became Gentile dominated. Therefore, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all run together and work together. Now, if these three books had no boundary markers at all telling us where one book 
ended and the next began. And You know what? We probably would get a better overall sense of their meaning. Since they do have boundary markers in the forms of titles and chapters, then we need to think of Exodus, Leviticus, which we're about to enter, and Numbers as a book series. Okay? Like the currently popular Left Behind series, each book has its own beginning and end, yet each book is designed to link with the others in a certain order. Without reading them all in order, the information we get is only partial and the story is incomplete. Leviticus, being the middle book of the series, necessitates that we link it to what came before it in Leviticus and what's going to follow it in Numbers in order to understand its context. So Leviticus is the middle book of the entire Torah. And as such, it is the heart of Torah. Leviticus is the focus and the center of Torah. Okay? It's like the center shaft of the menorah. Okay? Completely unlike the other four books of Torah, the setting of Leviticus is limited to but one place, the holy mountain, Mount Sinai also Mount, Mount, called Mount Horeb. And Leviticus answers for us the most basic question any thoughtful, thoughtful believer is eventually drawn to. And that question is well posed by the prophet Micah, who asks this question, With what shall I approach Jehovah? Do homage to Elohim on high? That's a pretty big question. Okay. The answer comes to us in Leviticus 19.2, which is, You shall be holy, for I, Jehovah, your Elohim, am holy. Now, hopefully those two Hebrew words, Jehovah and Elohim, are familiar to you by now. Right. For those newer to Torah, Yehovah is God's actual personal name. Elohim is a Hebrew word that means God. Now, just as Leviticus is central to the Torah, holiness is central to Leviticus. If what we're to approach God with is holiness, just how does one attain holiness? For the Levite priests, holiness involved much sacred ritual. You might be surprised to know, however, that much of the holiness ritual in Leviticus was also required of the Hebrew lay people, the common folk. The Levite priests tended to act as the attendants or the officiators of the rituals and the sacrifices. Later, they would be the instructors to the people about ritual and sacrifice. But right from the beginning, the common man, the common regular Hebrew man, performed many of these ceremonial acts we're going to read about, usually even including the actual slaying of the sacrificial animals. This was a unique concept in the ancient world. Priests of the other religions of that time were the only ones who were 
required to follow these strict rituals. Not the people. It was exclusively those priests who were subject to dietary laws and sexual taboos and purity provisions of whatever their religion was. Not the people. But for Israel, every man played a bit of a priestly role. Every man participated in prescribed ways. Every man had restrictions for diet, sexuality, purity, and so forth. And we're going to see these requirements for the common Hebrew man listed out in Leviticus. So centuries before Christ pronounced to St. John, as he did in Revelation, that every member of his church, every disciple of Yeshua was a priest, beginning with Moses, the duties of the priesthood slowly made their way from the common family to the sole providence of a priest class and then back into the common class, provided that common class trusted Jesus as their Messiah. Now, this complex system of rituals that God introduces in Leviticus would have in no way felt strange to the Israelites who were just receiving it. Certainly some of the principles and some of the ritual details command, commanded by God, no society had ever before known. The chief one of this heretofore unknown principle was the prohibition against the use of God images. That was totally new to the world. Okay. But animal sacrifices and agriculturally based festivals and sacrificial offerings to a god had long been standard operating procedure for most of the ancient world since long before Israel came into existence. Okay. The establishment of a set-apart priestly class of individuals was also typical. This was nothing that Israel would have found odd. Okay. We also shouldn't be surprised or alarmed at this historical fact that animal sacrifice to a god was old news. Okay. Upon exiting the ark, Noah, the one chosen to repopulate the earth, performed a ritual animal sacrifice. Okay. The godly principle of animal sacrifice had been laid down even earlier than Noah. And it was the center of the controversy which led to the death of Abel at the hand of his brother Cain. All right. When God made it clear that he found Abel's offering of an animal acceptable, but Cain's offering of plant life unacceptable. After the flood, all humanity would take their cue from Noah and how to relate to God. Okay. At least that was the case for a time. Noah was well familiar with God's ways. And those ways are reflected in an ancient legal code that came long before the law. And the code was named after Noah. Okay? It's called the Noahide Laws. Okay? St. Paul even refers to these seven Noahide Laws in the book of Acts. Okay? In general, the, the, the Noahide Laws are no idolatry, no blasphemy, no murder, no stealing, no immoral sex, no drinking blood or eating a live animal, 
And, and finally, man is required to establish a human government in order to administer God's justice system, his mishpat. Okay. These seven Noahide laws will eventually form the basis for the Ten Commandments as given to Moses. Within a few hundred years of the Great Flood, however, a powerful world leader named Nimrod led much of the Earth's population into open revolt against God. And the real basis of that rebellion was their refusal to obey those seven Noahide laws. Of course, this revolt had been brewing for some time as people were falling away from proper worship of Jehovah and Nimrod was just the catalyst and the, the leader. Where I'm heading is that it was not that God took some perverted, existing, man-made system of sacrifice and law and ritual and then he molded it and adapted it and, and, and used that perverted mess all right, as the basis for his system of holiness as found in Leviticus. It was actually the other way around. Jehovah first introduced his sacrificial and his holiness system to mankind through Adam and then reintroduced it through the second Adam, Noah. Noah taught his sons about God's justice and holiness system and his ton sons taught their offspring and so on. But you know, as men do, right, some folks began to ignore God's principles and others started their own religious cults that is, they added their own deceived thoughts to God's instructions and then this slide down a very slippery slope to false worship, idolatry, gathered speed. It culminated at the Tower of Babel when the world was again thoroughly wicked just as before the flood. Nimrod is credited as being the patriarch of what the Bible calls the mystery Babylon religions. And of course, these false religions took what the whole world already knew were God's standards as handed down by Noah and twisted them to conform to their wants, their sinful and selfish natures. And soon they were building altars to false gods and using God's holiness system in a perverted and unauthorized way. Animal sacrifice quickly led, way, led the way to human sacrifice. Sexual hope prohibitions turned to incest, homosexuality, religious prostitution. Various reptiles and birds and amphibians and mammals and men became God images. Okay. Like most deceptions, these false religions and their pagan rituals had at their core a degree of divine truth. Okay. But the truth became completely wrapped in lies and it was now barely recognizable of having been at one time pure and God-ordained. Okay. Leviticus was going to straighten that out okay. and put man back onto the proper path in the worship of Jehovah. But just as that path straightening that began after the flood was through one man, 
Noah, this latest path straightening would begin with one people, Israel, through one mediator, Moses. Now, interestingly, these pagan, ancient pagan worship practices that existed well before and during the time of Moses offer us a solid basis for actually believing the authenticity of Leviticus. And I point this out because many Bible scholars suggest that Leviticus does not come from the days of the Exodus, but a much later time. Okay, around the time of the Jews' exiles to Babylon, all right, in the 6th century B.C. More recent archaeological and documentary evidence, however, once again validates not just the authenticity of Leviticus, but points to its origination as being somewhere between the 12th and 14th centuries B.C. It's when we compare the archaeological and documentary evidence of Middle Eastern societies of that same era, 12th to 14th centuries B.C., like from Egypt and Syria, Mesopotamia, we compare that to what's contained in Leviticus, we see the unmistakable similarities. Much evidence has been recently unearthed about the vast and flourishing Hittite culture. And in that, we find even more examples of the literary form of Leviticus, as well as the religious practices that were typical for that era. We we not only have written documents, we now have pictorials found on walls and monuments that verify and flesh out what all those pagan cultic practices look like. And as one would expect, they fit very well within what's laid down in Leviticus. Now, it is strange that modern scholars do not in the least question whether what is written from Ugaritic or Egyptian temple documents actually took place. They buy it hook, line, and sinker. Yet so many of these same scholars see the Bible's description of the Israelites' religious practices as untrustworthy or pure fantasy simply because it's the Bible. Admittedly, there have been some redactions to the holy texts of the Bible over the centuries. I mean, look around at the scores and scores of Bible versions we have available to us today to us today is but a modern example of that. Okay. Yet with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that the variations within the Bible texts from the time just before Christ to now are extremely minor, utterly insignificant. Okay. So there's no reason for us to take Leviticus for anything other than what it actually is. The original Hebrew priestly sacrificial system given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. You can trust it. Now that said, there is strong evidence that some of the terminology that we're going to discover in Leviticus and throughout the Bible has changed a bit over time. What is particularly noticeable about Leviticus is that much terminology that deals with an agricultural society is going to be used. Now, that would fit well with Israel sometime after they'd settled in Canaan. 
But at the time of the original writing of Leviticus, the Hebrews lived like Bedouins, desert wanderers, not farmers. Scholars and teachers have wrestled with this and many other aspects of the Bible in trying to determine what's original, what's been altered. One thing's for certain. In all the various ancient scriptural documents found and examined, no matter from what culture or what language, not even from what era, the intent and meaning, the principles, the prophecies, and the stated attributes of God Almighty found in those documents remain absolutely unchanged. And that is the near unanimous conclusion of even the harshest Bible critic. Now, did Israel faithfully follow this priestly plan of holiness that was written down in Leviticus? In general, it was fully obeyed only sporadically. And how closely to the original it was followed varied in degree from era to era. For instance, one of the base instructions of the Torah is that the family of Aaron was to form the line of high priests. Somewhere in history that ended. At Shiloh, Shiloh, some priests from Moses' line were actually running the priesthood, not from Aaron's line. By the time of David, the family of Zadok, a descendant of Aaron, took over that role again. And nothing in the Bible addresses either the reason or the timing for these changes back and forth. As time rolled on, there even became competing priesthoods, if you can believe it. And even competing temples. Did you know that in Jesus' time, those hated Samaritans had built their own separate temple up in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, And they had their own version of the Torah, technically known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had their own priests. They had their own rituals. None of which was recognized as legitimate by the mainstream, Jerusalem-based Judaism. Seven centuries before that, Israel, which at that time had been split into two kingdoms, one called Ephraim Israel and the other one Judah, each had their own priests, their own sacrificial locations, and their own unique worship practices. So one can only imagine the variation that would occur over the centuries in the carrying out of the rituals we're going to read about in Leviticus. But in the end, we must continue to grasp that Leviticus, as with all the Torah, is put there to teach we creatures that live in a physical world of time and space some very important spiritual principles. And even when we go off track, it is possible to return to pure worship as Israel did time and time again by referring back to the original blueprints. Leviticus is organized in a very logical way. Chapters 1 through 7 cover the laws on ritual sacrifice. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 deal with the ordination of the priesthood. 
Chapters 11 through 16 deal with ritual purity and cleanness. And then chapters 17 through 27 lay down very basic principles and practices for applying holiness to the everyday lives of the Israelite people. As we read Leviticus, we're going to see that the goal is a realm in which wholeness, that's W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness, as incomplete, uncompromised, along with order and perfection, this is what represents the ideal condition of Israel. In the negative, the goal is a realm whereby undesired mixture, that is to where the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy, are never to come in contact with each other. And it's where flaws and imperfections that exist in the natural world are virtually outlawed from God's servants and from his sanctuary. From the priestly point of view, which is the lens through which Leviticus is presented to us, this book is primarily concerned with maintaining a state of perfect union between God and Israel. So Leviticus addresses all the various threats to Israel's life with God. A, A complex matrix of ordinances, which we typically call laws, are provided to facilitate purification and reconciliation when impurity and sin is encountered. These same ordinances are also there to establish a code of behavior that fits with God's justice system and to protect the priests and to protect the land and the people and God's earthly dwelling place from the pollution caused by all caused by sin that if left unchecked would eventually cause total separation between Israel and God. You're going to learn as we study Leviticus more about who God is, what sin is, the many faceted nature of atonement and redemption. The awful price that is always needed to turn the Lord away from his wrath towards us than any other book in the Bible. We're going to continue next week on our preparation to study the book of Torah that Jewish children are taught before any other. Leviticus. We'll see you next week.